welcome to this lecture sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event or visit iwp.edu. We'd like to thank all of our supporters who make our IWP events program possible. To support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today we'll be hearing from Mr. Victor Rudd, who will give a lecture entitled, Is America Teachable? Lessons Never Learned in Our Dealings with Russia. Mr. Victor Rudd practiced law for 40 years and served as special counsel to a member of the U.S. delegation to the Madrid Review Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. Before the fall of the Soviet Union, he represented in the West Soviet dissidents persecuted by the KGB. Mr. Rudd has spoken domestically and internationally before various audiences on issues bearing on U.S.-Russian relations, including specifically Ukraine. Among them are the State Department, West Point, American University, Kyiv, and the UN. His analysis and commentary have been carried by The Hill, Center for European Policy Analysis, The Messenger, Kyiv Post, and Forbes, among others. Mr. Rudd is past chairman of the Ukrainian American Bar Association and senior advisor to the Center for Eastern European Democracy in Canada and to Open Court, an NGO in Ukraine. He received his undergraduate degree from Harvard College and law degree from Duke University. With that, please join me in welcoming Mr. Victor Rudd. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm uh, absolutely delighted to be here. I want to uh, emphasize that I'm going to be pretty frank and uh, I don't mean any disrespect to any names that I may be mentioning of individuals. It's nothing personal, obviously, but I will be criticizing and assessing certain observation statements and policies articulated by uh, representatives of our foreign policy establishment and our government for the last hundred years. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I think that uh, uh, I want to start off by taking us back to 1991 when the Soviet Union imploded and we recouped our global primacy as close as we could have to the position that we were after World War II, number one, obviously. Uh, not quite at that level, but nevertheless, we were the only superpower at the time. And the question is, what in the world has happened since then? How do we explain where we are right now, certainly vis-a-vis -vis Russia, 30 or 30 plus years is not a long time really. For us it is, we have a short time frame, that's our culture, you go elsewhere in the world, 30 years is nothing. And how is it that Russia has been setting the agenda, controlling it? Uh, how is it that we have not been able to deter, prevent, stop, never mind reverse the gains that Russia has made with its international marauding? Half of our population, that's what they have, less than half of our population. Their economy, the last time I looked, it varies from day to day depending on your parameters, approximately the size of Texas or New York City, or the capitalization of Amazon or Apple computer. 
And if you add our NATO allies, you're talking about half of the world economy, more than a billion people. If you add the other countries that we consider to be, quote unquote, the West, over and beyond the NATO members, we're pushing close to two-thirds of the world economy being the latest no uh, numbers that I've read. There's nothing in your house that's made in Russia. You're not even going to find a better frying pan. Right? We're not talking about China. We're talking about a country whose only export is itself dependent on us, on our technology, and their weaponry is dependent on us. Somebody explain to me that imbalance. How does that work? And that is not a recent phenomenon. And we now have what we didn't have in 91, of course. We have the multiplier with North Korea and Iran. How has Russia flipped mutual assured destruction and converted it into unilateral nuclear intimidation and nuclear blackmail? Why wasn't that the other way around? How have we had and how have we allowed the reversal of half of our political spectrum, 50% of it, has been turned upside down. President Reagan wouldn't recognize the Republican Party today in the positions it's taken. And if you think all of that is due to simply homegrown partisan, uh, political partisanship, uh, you'd be wrong. There's more to it. Fiona Hill, who I'm sure you remember as uh, the NSC Russian expert under President Trump. In her book on Putin in 2005, she said that Putin is unable to understand the mindset of Americans and Europeans and their political dynamics. Well, for somebody who doesn't understand, he's done pretty damn well. Uh, we have to keep that in mind, and that then prompts the following observation, that I think we're long overdue for a very frank, and a very honest self-assessment. I'm going to start this off taking you back to the 1980s to somebody called Fred Coleman, who was the Moscow correspondent for Newsweek magazine. He wanted to interview Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin in the Soviet embassy here in Washington on the occasion of the new president being elected in the 1980s. He walks into the embassy and asks the secretary, is the ambassador looking forward to meeting the new president? The answer is, well, yes, just like a teacher is looking forward to the first day of kindergarten. Not very diplomatic? Well, I can tell you that Putin's contempt and disdain for the West, and particularly for the United States, is at least at that level and maybe not higher. And part of that disdain is what prompted him to invade Ukraine in February of 22, never mind back in uh, uh, 2014. <coughs> we are, to a certain extent, similar to a youngster, a toddler. We don't learn from our experience. Experience is what makes us adults. Good judgment comes from experience, or bad judgment, I should say. <coughs> excuse, excuse me. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. We are not a nation that's particularly interested in history. History is nothing more than a catalog of experience. And our time frame doesn't go back much further than the last electoral cycle, maybe the last administration. That is simply built into our DNA helix. We need that experience, knowledge, in order to have some predictive capacity about the future 
we need it in order to establish some sort of strategy that has some sort of lifeline more than a day, a week, or a year. Now, is that overstated? Is it understated? I'm going to take you on a, uh, this is going to be a bit like uh, drinking out of a fire hose for you, I think. I'm going to go through 100 years of our relations with Russia and the Soviet Union and try to hit what I consider to be the high points and the ones that illustrate certain conclusions and assessments that I've made, which I'm going to address and articulate partially during that talk, but also towards the end and try to summarize it for you. So we start off with World War I. The Russian Empire uh, implodes, communist coup d'etat in Moscow, and the Soviet Union takes the place of the Russian Empire. It's a reconstituted with a new moniker, with a new label. And control of Ukraine, which had declared independence, is vital both for the establishment and the viability of the Soviet Union. Little surprise, therefore, that when Ukraine declared independence in 91, the Soviet Union imploded. It was the nail in the coffin. It was not the first non-Russian republic, but it was the final blow. Woodrow Wilson's 14 points did not apply to Ukraine. Ukraine was not allowed a seat at the Paris Peace Conference, but it had a warning to the West and to the United States that within a generation's time, the new Russia, quote-unquote, would be an existential threat to the United States. And significantly, Ukraine had contracted and paid for aid from the United States that we reneged on. There were stores of weapons and medicines and blankets, literally, in our warehouses in post-World War I Europe that were gathering dust, and we refused to deliver them to Ukraine. Some of that was delivered to the Bolsheviks, notwithstanding the policy that we wanted or we favored the traditional imperial Tsarist structure as opposed to the communist regime. That's a story unto itself. Ukraine was occupied, and what it went through, several million people were killed. What it went through is basically what Ukraine is going through right now, with people, civilians being killed, raped, murdered, the whole, the whole ugly scenario. And the victims were in the millions. At the same time, we were putting Russia's, at that time Russia, excuse me, and then it converted into the Soviet Union, we were putting their economy and military industrial base into place. In the 20s and 30s, the person right after Stalin, who was God in the Soviet Union, was the American engineer. Our industrial projects in the Soviet Union were massive, and it's questionable, in my estimation, whether or not the Soviet economy would have survived without that input, particularly from the United States. I would urge you, if you're interested in this, read the works of Anthony Sutton, and it is a multi-volume treatise, and when you read what we have contributed and traded and added to the Soviet and the military complex in the Soviet Union, you'll be absolutely astounded. It was the primacy of business over our national foreign policy and national security interests. Most of that was granted, it was private, but it could have been controlled by the government. We didn't do that. We have a echo of the same thing with former President Obama when he said in an interview with, I think it was New Republic magazine, 
we do very little trade with Ukraine and geopolitically what happens in Ukraine doesn't pose a threat to us. In 32-33, there was the man-made starvation of Ukraine that broke Ukrainian resistance finally after 10 years of struggle. The world stood by and simultaneously on November 16th of 33, we extended diplomatic recognition to the Soviet Union. Now think about it. America is the ultimate Satan in the capitalist world, and it is the target of a worldwide communist movement to, to be destroyed, headed by Moscow. We're extending diplomatic recognition to Moscow, which in practical, real terms is acknowledgement, acceptance, and legitimization. And that was not done purely for business reasons, to promote business, even if that were an appropriate and a good response. Because we did more business, there was more capital pushed into the Soviet Union before recognition than afterwards, if you can believe it. What did we get out of it? We got an agreement. We live, we thrive, we push agreements. Agreements are supposed to resolve everything. The agreement we got was Moscow agrees to refrain from any act overt or covert, liable in any way whatsoever to injure the tranquility, prosperity, order, or security of the whole or any part of the United States, in particular, any agitation or propaganda. How did that work out? Tomorrow, as I understand it, I looked at the website uh, about a week ago, still current. You're supposed to have a uh, speaker here, I think, from the FBI, who's going to be talking about China. Well, China and our, wh what, our, what we did with China in the 70s, opened it up to the West, integrated, so on and so forth. That today doesn't seem to be the best example of strategic acumen. Well, we had a precedent for it. We did it with the Soviet Union earlier, as I told you. And then, after recognizing China, de-recognizing, if you will, Taiwan, we did almost the same thing with Russia in 1991. We put it on its economic feet, introduced it into any number of international organizations, and pulled it away from the precipice. I'll talk to, about that a little bit more. Okay, a little further. What's happening when we are supporting the economy of the Soviet Union? The Soviet Union is helping Germany rebuild its war industry and to sidestep the restrictions of the Versailles Treaty. We're funneling capital and technology into the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is helping Germany, mostly with raw materials, but if they didn't have American technology and capital, they couldn't even afford to do that. What happens then? We have Nazi Germany, we have a war a war that is initially triggered by Stalin and Hitler, as you know, the 39 Ribbentrop-Molotov Act. And we have the Lend-Lease Program. It started off initially as a program to benefit England, our ally. It developed rapidly into a program where the volume of aid extended to the Soviet Union eclipsed anything that England ever saw. There were no aid restrictions on that aid. There were no limitations on use. There was no tracking, there was no audit. We, in effect, financed and measured the Iron Curtain. American aid was used 
to suppress insurrections in the Soviet Union, to suppress the Gulag. So much aid flowed to the Soviet Union, they couldn't use it. They sold it to the Japanese. American war material and American weaponry was used by the Japanese against our troops in the Pacific. And our aid facilitated, allowed, directly or indirectly, but it gave Stalin enough wherewithal to exert his energy and focus on installing communist regimes in North Korea and China. That is, indirectly or indirectly, one of the consequences of our aid. We didn't monitor where it was going and what was being done with it. The last step in all of this was so-called Operation Keelhaul, the forced repatriation of Soviet citizens after World War II in the DP camps of Europe. That was, at times, literally a homicidal effort by US troops and British troops together, the soldiers on the front line. I've talked with some of them when they were youngsters. They were privates, minor grade. They were obeying orders. The irony is we were doing that at the same time of the Nuremberg trials, where the defense was we were only obeying orders, right? the defense of the Nazi defendants. It's a Unfortunate tragedy, I'll expand on a, on a personal story about George Orwell and that whole event. I think you'll find very interesting because nobody knows about it. It took us almost five years after the end of the war to overcome our delusion about the possibility of working together with the Soviet Union and to realize that it was, in the vernacular of the street, a scam. They got what they wanted. We didn't get anything that they promised we would get or that the world would get, quite frankly. We go into the detente in the 50s and 60s, containment and detente. I know among almost all the experts, there's a tremendous respect and regard for detente that it was tremendously successful. I consider it to have been an utter failure. Detente and containment did not contain the Soviet Union. Soviet power increased. Global influence of the Soviet Union increased. Ours decreased on both counts. Kennan, George Kennan, the author of ultimately the containment policy, you've probably read his Mr. X article in the Foreign Affairs magazine in your courses, totally ignored the factor that was pivotal in the eventual dissolution of the Soviet Union, and that is it was the USSR, it was not Russia. The two were not coextensive. The two cannot be interchanged. USA and America are not as USSR and Russia. There's no parallel there. And in his memoirs, he has a remarkable sentence. The Russians don't want to invade anyone. It's not in their tradition. Detente is not what caused the fall of the Soviet Union. What caused the fall of the Soviet Union was the rejection and reversal of excuse me, I should say containment more than, more than detente. Containment was rejected by President Reagan, and he undertook something that containment never contemplated, which was an affirmative, assertive policy against the Soviet Union intended to do more than just react and respond, but to actually try to weaken it and bring it down. President Bush, unfortunately, pulled back on that. I was involved in some of these activities and it was a disappointment that after the election in November, President Reagan was still uh, the president. 
President Bush was the, I should say, the president-elect. But already those policies were being pulled back. By that, it, by that time, it was too late. We hit 1991, Soviet Union dissolves, and Ukraine's renewal of independence had the effect of, hold on to your chairs, made America great again. That is the effect of Ukraine's in, uh, independence in 91. The Soviet Union at that point was known and understood and acknowledged by everybody in the Soviet Union. It can no longer exist and any attempt to have a, uh, a reiteration of it in whatever format, you know, the Commonwealth of Independent States, whatever you want to call it, is not going to work without Ukrainian participation or control, voluntary or involuntary, including control by the, uh, by the Kremlin. What did we do then? We did the opposite of what we did in post-war Europe. Instead of building up Ukraine and the other non-Russian nations, we had a modified Marshall Plan for Russia. Well, Russia did not, as Germany did after World War II. Russia never had an admission, apology, reparations, or accountability for its past conduct as the controlling republic in the Soviet Union. Germany did, of course. And yet our entire focus was on Russia. We brought Russia into the IMF, into the UN, into the World Bank. The G7 became the G8. And we did this despite the fact that Russia was the curator of terrorism. It converted what was called generic Arab nationalism into Islamic terrorism in the 70s and never got the sordid credit for it. A good summary account of that would be Claire Sterling's account on the terror network. And our intelligence services knew about this, but the politicians didn't want the public to know this. It would, hap it would have hampered the, the, the politicking that was being done by the governments and the politicians in Europe and in the United States. But that is an established known fact about Russia's involvement in this. NATO. What happened with NATO? NATO disarmed. The first trip that President Clinton took when he became president was to offer over $1.5 billion in financing for the Russian army, housing of the Russian army. Where did that money go? Nobody knows. Between 94 and 99, we had multiple programs with NATO and Russia. We had the Partnership for Peace program. In 94, 95, after the Dayton Accords, we had Russian peacekeeping troops, or I should say, troops joining peacekeeping forces in Bosnia. We had it again after Kosovo. In 97, we had the NATO-Russia Founding Act, and we left the door open for Russia to actually join NATO. NATO withdrew and shrunk itself into a miniature of what it was before. Why did we do this? What was the strategic thinking? What was the str uh, strategy, the goal, and the purpose? There was none. The, we hung everything on hope. Hope was the articulated, later on, the articulated reason for undertaking these measures, we evidently believing that we could convert overnight a bloody, 
system that was intent on our destruction that disintegrated and that the millions of people in secret cities, in secret labs, making secret poisons were suddenly going to convert overnight and become good Rotarians. That didn't work out. We were almost, an overstatement, but still it captures the gist of it, hallucinating about a brave new world. It wasn't going to come to pass. There was only one person that I have encountered in the what I will call the American establishment who foresaw what's coming down the pike. It was a young Navy lieutenant who did a senior thesis at the Navy Postgraduate School in Monterey in 1993, I'm going to read to you some lines from what he wrote. Regenerating Russia as the superpower successor to the Soviet Union will be a threat to the security of Ukraine and Europe. The United States will have assisted in creating a regime that is a serious threat to the democratic community of states. Were Russia to embark on a campaign to reconstitute, what options would we have? Ukraine provides the United States with a potential regional counterweight to Russian territorial expansion. Our approach to dealing with Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, in my book, I've labeled it as such in articles I've written, was foreign policy malpractice. Is that an overstatement? Is it an understatement? Let me go on and let me bring this to the end. I'll talk for a while yet, and I'll offer some conclusions, and then you can offer your own. It got worse. A year after that thesis, 94, we stripped Ukraine of the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. It was surrendered to, to Russia, by the way, and some of the missiles hitting Ukraine without the nuclear warhead, with conventional warhead, but still the missile that was surrendered by Ukraine to Russia has devastated Ukraine. Assistant, uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense Graham Allison, still very active. Ukraine's security problem will be solved once Ukraine gives up its nuclear arsenal. Again, this is an example where I'm mentioning a name for you to understand who makes these statements, what the judgment and the atmosphere was like. I don't know Graham Allison. I'm sure he's a wonderful gentleman. This is not my trying to criticize him in any individual capacity, but I am criticizing his view and his conclusion. We had a counterpart of that for the conventional weapons that Ukraine had, man pads and everything it needed, particularly at the beginning of Russia's extended inv uh, invasion in February of 22. The destruction of conventional weapons by a project partially headed by former Senator Barack Obama in 2005, who said that the conventional weapons of Ukraine are being destroyed for the safety of the Ukrainian people. He was filmed standing in a warehouse of weaponry in Donetsk, a city in eastern Ukraine occupied by Russia in the invasion back in 2014. It becomes worse. In 1997, this is three years before Putin, under Yeltsin, who, by the way, President Clinton compared to Abraham Lincoln because of Russia's destruction of Chechnya. A blueprint was submitted to the Russian general staff 
proposing to introduce geopolitical disorder into internal American activity, to promote all kinds of separatism, social and racial conflicts, extremist racist groups, and to destabilize internal political processes in Washington. Iran is to be a key player in a Russian-Islamic alliance against America. And Ukraine, above all, must be destroyed. That was in 1997. We may have invented the internet, but why weren't we able to prevent Russia then and China now, in addition to Russia, from using it and everything else that we invented from Facebook to LinkedIn to Google? Why weren't we able to prevent it to forestall its installation of malware into our cerebral cortex? We invent a weapon, it's used by somebody who is a declared enemy of the United States. <clears throat> if you read National Security Paper 68 in April of 1950, it warns about precisely these kind of activities, except at that time the technology wasn't there for Russia to be as successful as it has been. But the same warning and the same concern and pretty much the same language that's duplicated in the blueprint that was submitted to the general staff about how to subvert American institutions. What happened after that? The invasion and dismemberment by Russia of Georgia. I'll offer you two quotations to set by, uh, set by, side by side. The first one was by President Carter after Afghanistan and before Georgia, obviously. It's difficult to understand why they took this action. I think they probably underestimated the adverse reaction from around the world. Condoleezza Rice said this about the Georgian invasion. Everybody is now questioning Russia's worthiness as a partner. Russia has come out of this badly, and I think it would help deter them from trying something like that again. Well, it didn't deter them, nothing deterred them. Whatever we did didn't deter them because we didn't try. What we did, in effect, we extended, I understand the reasoning for it, it's all wrong, but I understand the reasoning for it. We extended a reward, which was the infamous reset under the Obama administration several months after the invasion of Georgia. That is not deterrence but it is the continuation of the same mentality that George Bush Jr. had earlier. Believe, we believe it's time to move into a new era. And it's little wonder that Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Most people don't know that two days after Ukraine declared independence in 1991, plans began underway in Moscow to gain Crimea and then to invade eastern Ukraine. A delegation sent to Ukraine was rejected by Ukraine, and those plans started rolling. Two day, actually, I'm sorry, it was three days. It was after that delegation returned. They flew to Kiev two days after that. Secretary Kerry, after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, was rather, uh, well, I'm not going to characterize it. Let me just tell you what he told Russia's Sergei Lavrov, foreign minister. 
We really hope that, excuse me, we hope President Putin will recognize that none of what we're saying is meant as a threat. We had a similar apology offered, a presumed apology offered by President Biden. Some of you may remember he had a TV interview, I think, on NBC, where he was asked, well, Mr. President, do you think that, uh, uh, that uh, Putin is a killer? President Biden said yes. Uh, not a lot of people know that right after that uh, taping, he called uh, uh, Putin about his comment. What was said, we don't know. It could have been an apology. I don't know. But it was the same emotional, visceral reaction. <clears throat> we have a piece in uh, the Washington Post by uh, Condoleezza Rice. I'll expand on it a little bit later on. She wrote it in March of 2014 after the invasion. It was called, Will America Heed the Wake-Up Call of Ukraine? And in 2014, she said, the immediate concern must be to show that uh, Russia that further moves, further moves will not be tolerated and that Ukraine's territorial integrity is sacrosanct. What does that mean? What does it say about our advocating the so-called rules-based international order? If further moves will not be tolerated, that means moves prior to this will be tolerated in 2014, including the annexation of Crimea. That's okay, except that further moves will not be. How much did this play, if anything, into Putin's assessment that he could move into uh, Ukraine on a, on a stronger basis in February of 22? And if territory is sacrosanct, which it is, the first rule of the rules of the road and of the rules-based international order is the stop sign. You don't invade other countries. That's what a border is for, right? That's the red line. Everything else, you know, climate, uh, climate change, trade, and everything else, you first have to have that rule in place. It's sacrosanct. What happens if you can buy it? What if somebody can just buy a violation of that. Well, what do we think imposing costs means? We will impose costs on Russia if it does X, Y, Z. It doesn't say we will prevent. We don't say we will act to reverse the gains that were acquired. It is simply imposing a cost. That puts a price tag on this. Our credibility, and I've had this told to me very, very directly, including by Russians, that simply imposes a cost on the rules-based international uh, order, a price tag. And that is, it has been articulated to me as one indicia of what they see as American hypocrisy. The Minsk Accords. The Minsk Accords were a rejection of sovereignty and territorial integrity. We endorsed it. And we endorsed it officially several times at the Geneva Conference summit with uh, Putin in June of uh, 91. If you read the press releases and the statements, you will see what I mean. What I mean, excuse me. What would, let's just imagine, let's say there is some sort of agreement, 20% of Ukrainian territory. What's 20% of American territory? I was on the train last night coming here 
It is everything east of the Mississippi River, other than the states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, and Indiana. Now, you look puzzled. That seems too much, right? Well, the kicker is Alaska. But Alaska is American territory. So if you're talking about 20% of American territory, we have to surrender everything east of the Mississippi. And for Ukraine, it would be comparable because that's where a lot of uh, the industrial base is in that part, as it is here in the United States. But besides the point, there's a mass of humanity on that territory. Well, what do we get out of all of this? I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can. The first one I touched upon before is the error that we kept on making about conflating Russia with the Soviet Union. I haven't encountered a single statement by any president, CIA director, Secretary of State, or NSC official between the 1920s and 1991 that didn't make that mistake. It is crucial, and it is the heart of the matter. I'll tell you why in a minute. Go to the uh, website of the State Department historian and read about the recognition of the Soviet Union. You remember Chernobyl, 1986? Time Magazine had a photograph of NASA, from NASA, of the Chernobyl complex on the cover page. The caption was, from NASA, not from Time. Chernobyl, Russia. And National Geographic, irony of ironies, National Geographic, had an issue, journey across Russia, the Soviet Union today. These, uh, these terms are used interchangeably with anybody giving any kind of thought to what the consequence and implications is and what it surrenders. And what it surrendered, unconsciously on our part, because we're so flippant about it, was the single most consequential, the most massive and the safest strategic asset that we had when we were dealing with the Soviet Union and today that we have with the Russian Federation. And that is that the Soviet Union was a multinational empire with all of the fractures and tensions and potential that any empire has, but particularly the Soviet Union. And we totally ignored it. It was never on the table. It was never in our calculations. George Kennan, when he was writing the containment policy, when we were talking about it, when the NSC was assessing it, when Truman passed orders on the basis of it, it was never in the equation. It's more important, I will dare say, than military arsenals. We could have done to the Soviet Union what Russia is doing to us today, exploiting tensions, fissures, so on and so forth. We, we started it under Reagan. I was involved in it. We stopped it. What else? It capitulated to the Kremlin the successful realization of a paramount goal. And their paramount goal was to complete Russification to the point that they were able to suppress and control the non-Russian nations of the Soviet Union and not have any threat to their control of it. That also tells us that we never learned the methods of subversion of the human mind, of individuals, of countries, of nations that is being practiced against us today with accelerated and better technologies. But the approaches to thinking, I could talk here, I'm sure you've had lectures on um, Russian disinformation, so on and so forth. We 
lost the benefit of that by never addressing the Soviet Union as a multinational state and the control that, this, that Russia tried to exert and how they tried to suppress and russify these countries. How can we argue that we won the Cold War, the Cold War dependent on the fall of the Soviet Union and we never understood what the Soviet Union was? That doesn't make any sense. If you argue and if you beat the drum about having a winning strategy, then where was the Soviet Union in all of this in our thinking? It wasn't there. In any event, the last point is empathy. 20 to 25 million Russians killed in World War II. No. That's not true. Read the writings of Tim Snyder at Yale or Norman Davies, perhaps the preeminent historian of Europe at Oxford. He was formerly at Oxford. He's still in Europe, I think. And you will learn that the country that had the highest human loss and the greatest destruction was Ukraine, eight to nine million people. No surprise, because Hitler's purpose for World War II, what was Hitler's purpose? Why, why was there war in Europe? Hitler's purpose for having World War II in Europe, I'm not talking about North Africa, was to invade, conquer, and occupy and control Ukraine. You would do well to find a YouTube video of Tim Snyder talking to the German Bundestag, teaching them their own history, which they have totally forgotten as well. It's all under the rubric of Russia. If there's a guilt complex by the so-called Putin-Versteyers in Germany, it's sort of directed towards the wrong nation. So that is sort of in a summary the consequences, very quickly, of this Russian-USSR conflation that, we're, that we were laboring under, and it has a role today. What's the role? The role is that Putin is arguing the same thing. He is pointing to us here in the U.S. and in the West, making the argument endlessly that it is in the West that we call the Soviet Union Russia. It's all Russia. And he is saying, yeah, it was all Russia. Russia lost 24% of its territory, he says, with the fall of the Soviet Union. And he is pointing to us as the ones, in addition to his own PR and his own propaganda, but he is pointing to examples of our own authorities saying these things and uh, as a consistent theme and position from an administration to administration to administration. Uh, Steve Kotkin is a, is, is a well-known, well-respected uh, scholar. He's doing, I think, a third volume now on Stalin. He was with Princeton. But even uh, Steve uh, slips up, and last year, he had an astonishing statement saying, Russia is still the largest country in the world, but it is much smaller than it was. No. Russia hasn't lost a square inch of territory since the fall of the Soviet Union. The Russian Federation has a third of Asia. Only one of its subregions is larger than France, Spain, Japan, Germany, Italy, United Kingdom, Greece, Sweden, and North Korea. And the western part of the of, uh, Russian Federation equals India and Turkey. That is not a country that needs more territory. Its border will stretch one and a half times around the world at the equator. 
I'm going to leave some time for questions. Um, I'm going to defer talking about um, the, the, the stronger, the, the actually the, the, the worst part of the Dezin form, which is the uh, Ukraine is Russia, Russia is Ukraine, so on and so forth, because that's so pervasive. Our academia uh, is, is tremendously Russo, not only Russo-centric, but I would say Russophilic. Uh, until very, uh, very recently, uh, you could um, uh, challenge or deny the periodic table, challenge the rules of physics, and say that the Earth is flat and you get a Nobel Prize. You try challenging academia or anybody else, any, uh, any, any uh, news outlet that wants to publish an article where you go against the grain of Russian imperial history and the relationship with Ukraine, you'll never get published. It is that strong. Uh, Su Pavel Sudoplatov, who was Stalin's favorite assassin, he, uh, he was involved in the assassination of a Ukrainian political leader in Europe, and then uh, Trotsky. He was involved in the Manhattan Project, the penetration of the Manhattan Project by uh, Soviet spies. And in his memoirs, in his first chapter, he had a lot of notches on his gun, but the first thing that he mentions in his chapter was his pride in participating in a war against Ukraine that formally ended, formally was his word, that formally ended when the world recognized Ukrainian independence in 91. So that's a 75-year war. Of course, it lasted before that for a couple of hundred years, but the fact of the matter is this is not the kind of historical attachment or deep historical attachment to Ukraine that Russia has and that unfortunately Bill Burns, currently head of the CIA, articulated uh, fairly recently, saying for that reason there is no way in hell that we should allow NATO membership for Ukraine because of Russia's deep historical attachment to Ukraine and Russia's interests and sensibilities. Well, I would suggest that reading the uh, memoirs of Pseudo-Platov is a rather more accurate statement of what the assessment was in terms of the relationship between those two countries. One comment here I thought I wouldn't get into is, but I think it is important because otherwise you're not going to run into it, I don't think, in most readings. Ukraine had, a thousand years ago, this Kievan Rus period in the Middle Ages, right? Uh, Professor Snyder has talked and written a lot about it, but he hasn't mentioned this. 200 years before the Magna Carta in London, Ukraine had its own version of a Magna Carta. One of the differences was it wasn't entered into, it wasn't signed by the ruler of that Kievan state by duress, as Prince John did. It was done voluntarily. And 77 years before the American Constitution, Ukraine produced a constitution for a democratic representative government with three branches of government, checks and balances, separation of church and state. This was before Montesquieu came out with his The Spirit of the Laws and shortly before Poland. Poland followed as well. But it was 77 years before the American Constitution. So if that is an inheritance, a legacy that uh, is Russian, uh, I would very much like to see where that is being implemented and how that's being exhibited. What are some of our lessons? We have not had a goal. We have not had a purpose. We have not had a strategy. We've had a hope in 91. 
We had containment, which was a perpetual geographic hopscotch of reaction and response. Walter Lippmann at the time, a well-known journalist, called it a strategic monstrosity. Another commentator called containment the bureaucratic verbalization of a policy of drift. And the result was abdication of the agenda, choice of place, time, and circumstance to Moscow. It is what we have now today, unfortunately. President Reagan was the exception. That is no longer the case. To have a strategy, we have to be patient, but we suffer from what I've characterized maybe a little bit too strongly, but nevertheless, it makes the point. We suffer from a national attention deficit disorder. We have a short time frame, we're impatient. We have a low frustration threshold. We want instant gratification, we want results. We're happy with stopgap measures. What was the reception on the Hill to President Zelensky two years ago? What happened the last time he was here? Russia attacks, accuses, and demands. We're defensive. We try to make nice. We try to prove our good intention. Can't we just be friends? We try to manage to stabilize. Russia initiates turmoil and creates it because that is its opening. Stability and management and predictability was the hallmark in Geneva, and it's part of our DNA. We have a mercantile background, a mercantile heritage, which depends on negotiation, compromise agreements, stable relations, and predictability. That's what commerce is built on. If you can't have a contract and predict your supply chain, you go bankrupt. And we have a system for enforcing that. The problem is we see an agreement as a resolution of a problem, Russia sees that as the opening of an additional problem. An agreement is not for Russia intended to solve a problem. It's intended to exacerbate that same problem, add additional problems, buy time, excuse me, or to divert attention. How do you enforce an agreement? We have enforcement mechanisms domestically for agreements. Right now, we're going through an international enforcement of international agreements violated by Russia. The war, the aid to Ukraine, all of that is exactly the only enforcement that international society has when somebody breaks the rules. But we don't want to enforce it anymore. We want to have another agreement. Well, who's going to enforce that agreement? We already have a couple of hundred agreements anyway. The humil humiliation about Russia, confusion, lost pride that uh, Putin is insulted, that he's sad. Bernie Sanders' advisor said he's looking for love. Former Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozarov said in a very interesting book, this so-called humiliation by America is a Kremlin myth. America gave us help and provided substantial humanitarian aid. It helped us preserve our status. At the UN, it got us into the IMF World Bank and other organizations. We remain the only nuclear power. All this happened at a seminal moment when Russia could have lost everything, both its statehood and international status. America helped us not only to pres uh, preserve all of this, but also to elevate our status. All of this is happening. We're doing all of this as 
the blueprint to take down America is being promulgated, put in place in 1997 and in the years prior to that, after that, and certainly even more so after Putin became president. We have, uh, I have about 10 minutes remaining on my, uh, on my watch. I'm going to leave some time. I guess if uh, I'm told that if we go over, we can't go over because the room has to be prepared for classes. So uh, Sarah told me we could um, go into the hallway a little bit for Q's and A's, maybe electronically, but uh, I'll spend probably another five minutes. Uh, the fact that um, a lot of people, a lot of analysts, and our policymakers are guided by Russia in many respects as being defensive, it has security needs, fear of encirclement, backyard legitimate interests. This reverses the victim and the perpetrator. Russia in the 19th century did a study of its military operations over the course of 200 years. 38 wars were fought, two were defensive. The last, the remaining 36 were all offensive. Fear of provocation, well, fear of provocation is the provocation. And let me tell you just very quickly about, um, I was a student in undergrad. One of my professors was, was um, Ihor Shevchenko, Ukrainian by birth. He was a world-renowned by that time, world-renowned scholar of the Byzantine Empire. He was a young man, 21 years old, in the DP camps during Operation Kiel Hall, the forced repatriation of Ukrainian and other refugees after World War II. And he wrote a letter to Orwell saying, asking permission to write a Ukrainian translation for the Ukrainian refugees because they were despondent. They wanted to know, although this is happening, they wanted to know there's somebody in the West who understood their plight and what they went through and everybody else went through. Orwell said, sure, great. And he wrote an introduction. That shipment of books was inter uh, intersected, uh, inter intercepted excuse me, by the U.S. military, handed over to NKVD headquarters in Frankfurt, Germany. Why? The Russians would find it offensive. They would be, it would be provocative. Well, this isn't a book that's going to be read by anybody in the Soviet Union, but that mentality of ours was so deeply ingrained when the Soviet Union was beholding to us because of Lend-Lease, it's still, if that's what it was at that time, imagine what it is right now. George Orwell, incidentally, you don't know this maybe, but George Orwell couldn't get his book published, Animal Farm, it was rejected by 14 publishers in succession with almost the exact same reason. It's too provocative. Russia won't like it. But I'm not going to market it in Russia. And one of the publishers, by the way, you'll recognize the name, one of the representatives for the publishers was uh, the author T.S. Eliot. There was at least one British officer that was tried in a court-martial in London for refusing to follow orders of his NKVD handler. And Poland, the Free Polish Army, that fought so valiantly with the Allies, they were refused participation in the Victory Parade in London. The Ukrainian underground extended a warning to OSS in Washington that Stalin was going to have Patton assassinated before he returned to the United States. Patton was ticked off about the failure of American sophistication vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and what was going to come. The Ukrainians had an informant in the KVD headquarters who said that Pavel Sudoplatov, the assassin that I mentioned to you, had just arrived to implement a plan to kill Patton. Bottom line of all of this is Russia is a different solar system. That system has been in place for centuries. 
and we cannot penetrate it unless we have input and believe and listen to and understand the experience of those who have. The Soviet legacy that Putin celebrated, Stalin's birthday in December of 99 before he became president, the Utah Winter Olympics, Soviet propaganda posters. We have a KGB bar in New York. We have hammer and sickle beer in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Jay Carney, who was uh, President Obama's press secretary, had Soviet posters at his home that was splashed on the pages of Washingtonian magazine. And unfortunately, Jen Psaki, who became the uh, press secretary for President uh, Biden previously, was modeling uh, a, a Soviet hat made for her in pink by Lavrov with a hammer and sickle on it. You say Hitler, you have one reaction. You say Stalin, means nothing. We don't have a visceral, never mind an intellectual understanding, we don't have a visceral understanding of the things that propels Putin and his inheritance and his own learning curve. None of that is touched upon in any of the writing, any of the analyses, very, very little I should say, but almost none. Uh, I wrote a letter to Condoleezza Rice in December of 2004 warning her that uh, Putin was going to invade and occupy Ukraine and how we handled that was going to determine plus or minus our global deterrence credibility. It would be especially acute because North Korea and Iran both were already at that time raising their head. And we had the precedent of us stripping Ukraine of its nuclear weaponry. Um, she replied of sorts, as I said, nine and a half years later with the article, Will America Heed the Wake Up Call of Ukraine? That was in 2014. Today, 10 years later after her article and almost 20 years after I wrote to her, we can almost ask the same question. Will we heed the wake up call of Ukraine and everything it implicates to us globally? What to do? I mentioned one thing. I think we need input from people who don't have the same background that everybody else does who enters the foreign policy establishment and policymaking circles. I think one of our best brains in the national security area was uh, Zbig Brzezinski. I think another one was Richard Pipes. And I think the only president we had who really understood what we faced security-wise was President Reagan. We are not going to betray our friends, reward the enemies of freedom, or permit fear and retreat to become American policies. This was a position of the late President Reagan. Those of you who um, follow, maybe read, like English language literature, will know the name William Butler Yeats. He's an Irish poet and a very famous line, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Somehow we have to try to turn that around. It can be done. But we have to ask ourselves and look inward and be critical of ourselves. There's nothing wrong with being critical of yourself. But we have to know how and where we got it. That is in a summary, a very, very brief summary might take on the matter, very obviously.
So a couple of minutes for questions. I guess that's all we have. And then after that, we can retire in the hallway or uh, I'm happy to communicate by email, whatever you'd like. Yes, please. Sure. Well, that's true. We, we, we had two FBI agents sitting in New York City monitoring over 3,000 Soviet purchasing agents during Lend-Lease. They were given virtually unrestricted access to any industry, any factory in the United States. They were not purchasing agents. Every single one of them was a trained NKVD specialist in the industry and the technology that they were assigned to. They walked away with much, much more than just the lend uh, stuff we gave them, but it's apropos of your point. Yeah, there's a lot to it. But even, even more than that, our mindset, we, we have to be willing to admit that we made gross mistakes and we don't know it all. We have to have the input and we have to listen a little bit more carefully for people really on the front line, Poland, the Baltics, Finland, Ukraine. They know this stuff, they live through it, and if everything goes boom, they're the first ones to go. So they're not gonna be anxious to do that. Every single person I talk with of any, I'd say of any competence from any of these nations, I ask them as a tease, well, what's your take on the fact that Americans are afraid of uh, escalation, nuclear war, World War III? They said, Putin will never, ever pull the trigger. Where is he going to keep his money? Where is he going to get? Where are all the oligarchs going to go? Where are they going to vacation? Survival is the most important thing. But if things continue now on the new trajectory, more or less, that we've had recently, that credibility aspect of what would happen if they use nukes is being lost. We are starting to develop a situation where the assessment in Moscow of us is becoming even more dangerous for us because of our own pusillanimity. Yeah. Please. You know, I, this is the I, I, I agree, I, I agree 100%. I did make the comment in my own defense, I did make the comment at the beginning that 
how can you learn from your experience when you don't even know it and you're not interested in it? So if I said we're forgetting history to a certain point, we are, but we just don't know it. You're absolutely right. Well, what brings me to the point uh, uh, in this graceful example of that was Carlson interviewed Putin. Well, yeah. And I don't want to waste anybody's time. I'm going to say the same thing that you know. There's a young lady here who had raised her hand. What do you mean? How, how to maneuver against our own interest? Sure. Are those set in stone? Can you manipulate those or can you manipulate those? No, my, my, my suggestion is precisely what these nations are saying, and that is turn Putin inward. We are never going to get away from the inherent disadvantages that any democracy has in dealing with a single-minded tyranny. We have additional disadvantages, particularly as an American democracy, for some of the reasons that I recited. We're never going to be able to educate the John Doe on the street or the general electorate. We have to do what we can do, and ironically enough, what we can do is something we're not doing. At least we did a little bit of it um, during the days of the Soviet Union, which is information. There is a tremendous amount, well, it's not there. There's a tremendous potential and there is a growing amount of tension within the Soviet Union. And it's, it includes Russians themselves in, in Siberia. They don't view Russians in Moscow as part of them. There is a tremendous amount of anger from some of the non-Russian non nations that their resources are being sucked out of their land. They're not getting anything back. There are ecological complaints. Uh, one of the best uh, recent pieces was a book uh, by uh, Janusz Bugajski, who's with, uh, I believe he's with uh, Jamestown, and I do know that he spoke here, I think, about a year ago. Uh, I think the title of the book is The Coming Russian. No, that was a gentleman out of um, uh, uh, the, the Coming Russian Collapse or something along those lines. But if you... Um, but if you Google Bugajski, B-U-G-A-J-S-K-I, uh, he, he puts it together very, very well. And that is something to be done. It's not going to change our standard of living. It's not expensive. It is the core of what we should have been doing before 1991. And it acknowledges that the Russian Federation is not coextensive with Russia any more than the Soviet Union was, right? So I don't know. I don't know if that's responsive, but that's what comes to mind. Yes. Ah, that's it. I'm sorry. You're right.
Well, look, I, 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 um, there, there are, there, there are several. I would say there are about a dozen people I think who are uh, uh, very, very good, uh, and not all of them are recognized as Russia experts. Um, but um, some of them actually are individuals who uh, took the opposite position. Uh, Fiona Hill, for example. Uh, two months before I wrote my uh, warning to Condoleezza Rice, she had a piece in the New York Times op-ed, Stop uh, uh, Criticizing Putin and Start Helping Him. It was in September of 2004, two months before I did. She was on the opposite end of the spectrum. She swung around the other way. Ambassador Michael McFowell uh, totally objected to my letter to uh, Condoleezza Rice. He's come around 180 degrees, and, and they're doing you know what they can. They're doing very, very good work. But I think you really have to get into and connect with people who have had that exposure and, and have a sense and a visceral, a visceral intelligence about who and what we're dealing with, for starters, and then they superimpose analysis and you know, the cerebral cortex on, on, on that. Um, one fellow, I think, who's good here in Washington is, uh, well, there are several. Uh, Steve Blank, I think, is very good. Uh, Herman Perchner, uh, who's not uh, all that well known uh, in, in, in certain circles as well. There are, uh, there are several. I think uh, Kurt Volker gets it. Um, oh my gosh, my friend. Uh, how can I forget the name of my friend who was the editor? Uh, Ed Lucas, who was the former senior editor of The Economist. And he got it. I mean, he's a Brit. He's, he's right from Sherwood Forest. But he got it because as a youngster, or I should say as a young adult, he spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and the Baltic countries. And he knew and he understood, and he understood the system when it was loosening up already. Uh, he's written on it. I think his uh, observations and his guidance is spot on. Uh, I think Ann Applebaum gets it. Uh, I think Tim Snyder gets it. Uh, so, I mean, there are others. I, I hate to keep on n naming names. I'm going to forget a lot of names. So, but that just gives you a sense. Oh, I, I wasn't aware, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I misheard, because I wasn't aware that you were asking about professors specifically. Right, right, well, well yeah, I, 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 I didn't understand that you were looking at them from their profor uh, professorial status. Uh, you know, there, there are, if I put my mind to it, I just can't snap somebody off the top of my head. Yeah, pardon me? It, 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 yeah, I understand, sure. Yes? I'm sorry? The, the imperialization of academia, you have to understand, so-called Russia studies were established in the West after the Russian coup d'etat, where Russian imperial scholars went to the West, the Sorbonne, 
Oxford, uh, uh, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and they established Russian studies. It was the imperial story about imperial Russia, and that was, that was, that was the diet for everybody. Everybody grew up on it. I can tell you what, how every book on Russia, Russian history begins. Begins with, Russian history begins in Kyiv. All right, so um, how do you uh, combat that? There is a, a, a bit of a groundswell in academia. It was brought on by, quite frankly, it was brought on by the atrocities at the beginning of last year in Bucha and Irpin when the Russians invaded. And, uh, and all of a sudden, people who never looked at Russia this way, you know, Dostoevsky is, uh, you know, a, a, a great um, writer. Well, Dostoevsky was an imperialist as well because he said everybody in the empire must be Russian and must be made to believe he is Russian. So people are discovering things such as this, and slowly maybe there will be a turnaround in academia. Uh, how do you do it? I, I really haven't set my mind to it other than challenges, arguments. I mean, I, I could stand here and I can give you a couple arguments about the fallacy of, of, of that whole line of uh, historiography, but we don't have the time for it. I have written a couple of articles, though, so. Yeah, please, I'm sorry, there's a gentleman there. Oh, I'm Sarah, we're done, right? Yeah. Yeah, Let, yeah we, we, we can do it out there, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm being told to get out of here. <laughs>